I'm Michael Klein, Executive Editor of Econofact, a nonpartisan web-based publication of the Fletcher School at Tufts University. At Econofact, we bring key facts and incisive analysis to the national debate on economic and social policies, publishing work from leading economists across the country. You can learn more about us and see our work at www.econofact.org. In their new book, We've Got You Covered, Rebooting American Healthcare, Liran Ainav and Amy Finkelstein write, the healthcare sector is almost one-fifth of the U.S. economy, but it punches below its weight. It delivers far less than it could for that price tag. Many of us are familiar with stories of the shortcomings and expense of the healthcare system in the United States, and some of us may have firsthand experience with this. Amy and Laurent draw on these stories, as well as their pathbreaking research, to report on the state of healthcare in the United States and, importantly, on their recommendations for how to fix the system. Amy, who is my guest today on Econofact Chats, is particularly well-placed to do this. She is the John and Jenny S. McDonald Professor of Economics at MIT. She has won many awards for her research, perhaps most notably the John Bates Clark Medal from the American Economic Association, which is given every other year to the economist under the age of 40 who has made the biggest contribution to economics. Amy, thanks for joining me today on Econofact Chats. Thanks for having me, Michael. Amy, congratulations on the publication of We've Got You Covered. I thought it was a really engaging and enlightening book. Thank you so much. So let's start out with the state of play. What did you mean when you wrote the United States healthcare system delivers far less than it could, given that it represents one-fifth of the spending of the United States? Yeah, so our book focuses particularly on the problems of health insurance coverage And we emphasize three problems. The first is the one that I think everyone knows about because it gets a lot of attention, which is the fact that one in 10 Americans under 65 still lack health insurance coverage. But the two that get much less attention that we also think are really important is that even for the 90% of Americans who are fortunate enough to have health insurance, that health insurance is both highly uncertain and highly incomplete. So just to give you a sense, one in four Americans under 65 will spend some peri- some substantial period over a two-year period without health insurance. In other words, health insurance whose purpose is to provide some measure of economic certainty and security in an insecure world is itself highly insecure and uncertain because you can lose your coverage if you change your job or if you're qualified for a program, a government program, but then your age changes or your income changes or your health changes. And then the final problem is that even for people who are fortunate enough not only to have coverage, but to maintain that coverage, they can still face enormous out-of-pocket medical expenses for their supposedly covered care. So not only is the amount of medical debt in the United States just astounding, $140 billion in unpaid medical debt held by collection agencies is the current estimate, but even more striking, Laurent and I estimate that three-fifths of that debt is incurred by households that have insurance when when they're incurring that debt. 
and yet they, you know, because of high deductibles or unlimited cost sharing, they end up still facing unaffordable bills. I thought it was very clever and useful in your book to begin your analysis of what's wrong with the healthcare system and what needs to be done by asking the question, what is it that the U.S. health insurance policy is trying to accomplish? You wrote that no one was asking this central question. Striking to me, especially as an economist, where we're trained to, you know, define the objective and then figure out how to achieve it, that in policy debates in general, and and particularly we've seen this in health insurance policy, people start throwing around slogans and buzzwords, single payer, Medicare for all, pick your favorite one, without ever articulating what is the goal, what is the purpose of this policy, what are we trying to accomplish? And it seems to us, you can't even begin to discuss the solution until you agree on the purpose. We spend a lot of time on this in the book, and I won't go into all the detail, but I'll say that, you know, while there are uh, many potential good reasons for the government to get involved in health insurance policy, to improve population health, to fix market failures, the list goes on and on. And we've, you know, we've worked and, and written on many of these, what, what it became clear to us when we studied both our history of health policy, incremental reforms and patches over the last half century or more, as well as our current policy, is that actually they reveal a, a somewhat surprising but very real uh, social commitment, a social contract, if you will, uh, to make sure that to try to make sure that everyone has access to essential medical care, regardless of resources. Now, it's not clear we've succeeded, but it's very clear as we discuss in the book that that's what we've been trying to do. Yeah, you're right. Um, your mention of slogans reminds me of a, a bumper sticker that I put on my car a few years ago that I created. It said, ideas, not slogans, as a bumper <laughs> sticker. I like it. So you said that there have been efforts to address the problems of healthcare system, but they're patches. And as you and Laron write, they have all been incremental. So what did you mean by that? In why is this not the way to go? Yeah, so we're trying to describe what an ideal system would look like. These patches were created in the real world with political constraints and realities, and people were trying to accomplish the most they could. But what we've seen over the history of the last half century or more is that a particular policy window were open, a particular problem of a particular group will become salient, and health insurance coverage will be extended to a particular body of people based on often their health conditions. So we have separate programs for people who have kidney failure, for people who have breast cancer, for people who have tuberculosis, endless patches on top of patches. And the problem is that whenever there are multiple paths to coverage, there are always going to be people who don't find their path or who, you know, uh, slip between the seams of the patches. So, you know, we give many examples in the book, but just to give one with all this disease specific coverage. So there's a famous program that covers people with end stage renal disease, end stage kidney failure. It was basically created because there was a new technology that was potentially life-saving dialysis and artificial kidney, and yet people were not able to afford it. So we, we had a public outcry and we had, we had this program. What's the problem? Well, People who uh, have chronic kidney failure can't get covered till they reach the end stage. So they can't get the preventive care that might help them from not get there. And then if they do get coverage and they're fortunate enough to get a kidney transplant, well, now they have a functioning kidney. They no longer are at the end stage and they lose their coverage, even though they face 
tens of thousands of dollars of immunosuppressant drugs for the rest of their life. Uh, so we discuss a lot of these examples in the book. One of the examples is this young girl, Katie Beckett, right? Exactly. That And that illustrates how sort of politically something that tugs at your heart's, heartstrings can lead to a big change in policy, but it's not done in sort of necessarily a rational way. Yeah, it's, it's particularly amazing that the, the, the heartstrings that were pulled at were, were President Ronald Reagan, who had been inaugurated the year before, you know, with a speech saying government is not the solution. And yet he was taken by the plight of this disabled little girl who couldn't leave uh, a nursing home or a hospital because if she did, she'd lose her health insurance coverage. So, you know, he got the rules changed, but it only applied to kids and medical technology progressed. And she fortunately was able to live into adulthood. But of course, once she was no longer a child, the patch that had been created for her no longer applied. One of the things that really struck me in the book is that you kind of overturn a lot of conventional wisdom. For example, you write that no one is uninsured. And at first, I didn't know what you meant by that. But after reading, I saw, oh, that makes a lot of sense. So can you explain what you meant by that statement? Yeah, it's a, it's a very important point. It's what does it mean to actually be uninsured? Uh, so obviously there are, as we said, one in 10 Americans who lack formal health insurance, but to actually be uninsured would mean that any medical care you receive, you pay for yourself. And that's just not what happens. If we look at work that I've done from the Oregon Health Insurance Experiment and other people's work, it's very clear that the uninsured get about four fifths of the medical care they would get if they're insured, and even more strikingly, they pay for only about 20 to 30% of that care. If they were actually uninsured, they'd have to pay for all of it. Why is that important? It's important because it's part of the evidence we suggest in the book of this actual social contract, this commitment to try to provide access to essential medical care regardless of resources, because the, the rest of that care is paid for not out of private charity, but by a series of public programs that are designed and funded to cover care when people can't afford it and are uninsured. So Amy, you've used the term social contract a few times already. And implicitly, um, there is a social contract in the United States having to do with the health of the population and talking about the people who are seemingly uninsured, but in fact are not, is part of it. So can you be a little bit more explicit what is the social contract that we have in this country towards people and their health? What it appears to be, and you can look to the very, uh, you know, origins of our republic and the, and the growth of hospitals in the 19th century as primarily charitable institutions, uh, even when they couldn't do much medically, it appears to be a strong commitment to, you know, put it quite crudely and to use words that the, uh, uh, historian of medicine Charles Rosenberg used in describing the origins of the hospital system to not let people die in the streets, uh, or as we try and put it in the book, to try to provide access to essential medical care, even if you lack the resources. That was why uh, dialysis for end-stage renal disease patients got covered. That was why Katie Beckett you know, got a program that allowed her and other disabled children to get cared for at home. So you know, and we talk in the book about some of the psychological and philosophical motivations or, or, or impulses behind that contract. We're not here to defend it as, as, you know, the only or the right normative contract, but it's just very clear. And we're not the first to say this. This is a 
an, an idea that has been supported for centuries and across the political spectrum that once we recognize that fundamentally we are not going to let people die in the streets, that we are going to try in some ad hoc and probably inefficient way to do something once people are sufficiently ill and don't have the resources, that we might as well formalize and fund that commitment up front through, through universal coverage. So we don't let people die in the streets. There's not some kind of Dickensian dystopia. But there are huge disparities in health outcomes across income groups, across race and ethnicity, and you discuss this in the book. But again, I was surprised when you wrote that universal health insurance is not, as you put it, the policy lever to lean on in order to reduce these disparities. Why not? That's a terrific question. And, you know, I said early on that it's really important to define the goals of health policy or any policy before you talk about the solution. I think it's also important to be clear and realistic about what's out of scope. And as we discuss in the book, these disparities are real and they're very disturbing and they are potentially amenable to public policy, but not, in fact, as a large body of research suggests, policies that affect medical care or access to medical care uh, through health insurance. And I think one of the most striking pieces of evidence of this comes from work that economists have done documenting that even in countries like Sweden and Norway, which not only have universal health insurance, but have you know, a cradle to grave social safety net that's much more extensive than ours, even there you see shocking disparities in health outcomes across the income distribution that are on par with what we see in the United States. And this and a whole other body of evidence that we discuss in the book really suggests that the fundamental drivers of health disparities are not about the medical care you can access, but about you know, the air you breathe, the cigarettes you do or don't smoke, the exercise you do or don't get, the food you eat. Pollution regulation, cigarette taxes, those are all amenable to policy. It's just not about medical care and health insurance. Yeah, along these lines, we have a really interesting podcast with Arlene Geronimus, in which she describes how those under chronic stress, especially people in the Black community, suffer from what she calls weathering, resulting in much worse health outcomes. And the solution to these problems are not rooted solely in the healthcare system and would not be resolved with more widespread coverage. Exactly. I mean, I think that her work is, 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 is one of the many examples of the kinds of phenomenon we're talking about. So given all of this, um, what would you advocate as the health insurance and healthcare landscape. And again, what I really appreciated in your book is you didn't just lay out the problems, you laid out a set of solutions as well. Yeah, it, it, it comes more naturally to me as an academic economist to point out the problem. So, but we did work hard on the solution as well. So I'm glad you appreciate that. Well, I really like that at the beginning of the book, you motivated the book by having, what was it, your uncle ask you, what can we do? And you tried to quickly sort of point him towards the Thanksgiving turkey or something instead. Yeah, no, I think, you know, it, it's easier to analyze current policies and say what's wrong with them or how they could be improved than to say, what should we do? But we thought it was important. And that's why we took time to think about it and to write the book. It turns out that if you buy our argument, and I, and I hope you do, and if not, buy our book, and then maybe you will, uh, the, the, the view of what's wrong with the health insurance system, these uh, patches that allow people to slip through the crack and lose their coverage, even if they had it at one point, 
and the goal, which is to provide access to essential medical care, regardless of resources, then the solution actually becomes very straightforward. It's two-tiered. First, automatic, basic, universal coverage that's completely free for everyone. And second, the ability to supplement that with additional coverage if you want to and can afford it in a well-designed market. So another thing that was striking in the book, and I guess you yourself changed your mind about this, is you said the basic coverage was free to everyone. And economists think that the price system should be there to do things. But then on a little reflection, like, I'm not going to want another colonoscopy because it's free. (laughs) Um, And, you know, even like a less extreme example, uh, it takes time to go to the doctor. So, you know, it might be free in terms of charging me out of pocket, but not free in terms of other things that I value, like my time. So, you know, on a little reflection, that made a lot more sense to me. Yeah, that's that's the part of the book where I think we come as close as you can to committing professional heresy that, you know, as economists, we've, we've done research, we've written on, we've lectured generations of students on this idea that uh, if people have to pay something for their medical care, if they have a little bit of, you know, financial skin in the game, they'll be more judicious in making their healthcare choices. And the evidence on that is very clear that when you make people pay something for their medical care, they do use less of it. The reason we, The reason we come out against any of these cost sharing, co-pays, deductibles and basic coverage is not because the evidence is wrong, but because the implications we drew from it were wrong, at least when it comes to universal basic coverage. And you can see that by looking at what other countries have done when they followed the advice of economists and introduced co-pays. They then introduced layer upon layer of exemptions, exempting, you know, 90 percent plus of the population if they were old or sick or poor or a student or a veteran. So basically, if you have a contract that you're going to provide essential medical care to everyone, regardless of resources, there's always going to be someone who can't afford the $5 copay or the $20 copay. And they end up creating the kind of patchwork mess we have in the US just on the specifics of copays. And once we realized that in country after country, we said better to just skip it entirely than create it and then create a bunch of workarounds to get rid of it. So you've already warned us against simplistic sloganeering, but there is the slogan Medicare for all. Is what you're describing a little bit like basic Medicare and Medicare Advantage? Um, In some ways, yes. Uh, Certainly the uh, Medicare Advantage is, is one natural way to do the supplemental market, as we discuss. I would say that basic Medicare is both more generous and less generous than what we're proposing. It's less generous because uh, basic Medicare still has the patient paying a lot out of pocket. They have to pay one in five of their physician bills with no cap in sight. So if you're unfortunate enough to say, have large medical bills from oncology treatment, you can have faced tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of dollars in medical bills you owe. We think that's you know not what should be included in basic coverage. On the other hand, uh, Medicare is more generous than what we would uh, have in the basic coverage in the sense that it covers basically everything with uh, no restrictions on what doctors can do. Medicare is prohibited by law from considering costs and approving new technologies. Physicians face no uh, requirements or authorization requirements before they order a test or a treatment. Our basic system would be more like Medicaid for all. 
Um, so, you know, longer wait times, uh, more, uh, you know, perhaps more gatekeeping before you can get to see, get a specialist or a, or a special test, but no copays, no deductibles and automatically there. And then the ability to supplement in the private market. So let's talk about the supplementing then. Um, you know, one of the things is that not everybody has the same access to housing, right? So there's some, like, like by the analogy, there's some basic housing that's afforded, but then if you want a nicer house, you have to pay for it. And you kind of make that analogy in the book, but is healthcare different than housing in that way or different from other things where, you know, because you're poor, you shouldn't be denied, I don't know, you know, whatever would be covered under supplemental um, that is not covered under basic? Yeah, this is something this is something that we struggled a lot with and thought a lot about. There's there's an intuition that, you know, health is somehow different from other things like food and housing, that it holds, you know, a special place in our moral firmament and that inequality in health is more disturbing than in other things. And I guess to that we have several answers. One, as we've already talked about, we don't actually think health insurance is in health insurance policy is that going to be the major lever to close those uh, health inequality gaps. Uh, the second is more practical, which is this is how we do everything in the United States, whether it's security, we fund you know local law enforcement, but people buy private security cameras and home alarm systems. We fund universal public education, but people are allowed to you know supplement it with parochial or private school. And the third answer, which we talk a little bit about in the book, is that if you go to the political philosophers, uh, people like uh, Norman Daniels and John Rawls, they say that actually health and education actually are different from other goods precisely because they're related to equality of opportunity. But even they come down on the side of uh, that means we have to provide a standard of adequacy, not one of equality. So... Amy, I'd like to close with uh, something that um, I really don't understand very well. Maybe you understand it better, but it's the political side of it. So we're economists. We're not political scientists or politicians. And as we all know, the fight over Obamacare was incredibly intense. And you and Laurent are proposing a much more widespread overhaul of the system. What's your sense of the political viability of what you're proposing? Well, first of all, let me say that I think that's the right place to end this discussion, as we also do in the book, rather than to begin it. I think too often policy discussions begin with let's consider what's feasible. And I think what's feasible is very hard to predict, or at least I at least missed that day in graduate school where they handed out those crystal balls. So we view our role as, as academics and academic economists is not to craft a plan that we think is the best we can do given the current political constraints. That's the job of the hardworking people in trying to enact policy uh, in the, you know, in the state houses across the United States and in Washington, but rather to, you know, articulate what we think is the ideal constrained only by economics. We do, you know, have economic constraints in our book, but not politics so that when in the future a policy window opens up, people are ready and hopefully agree with our ideas to find a way to implement it. I, I don't want to be overly simplistic and overly naive. Um, there are certainly major political hurdles, but as we discuss in the book, 
um, our reading of the history of near misses in the United States at universal coverage. And we discussed some of them, including I think most saliently in the early seventies when both parties had competing proposals for universal coverage on the floor of Congress, as well as the incredibly bitter fights that occurred in other countries that did enact universal coverage, Britain and Canada being two examples we talk about, is that it's not obvious that it's our destiny to remain the only country without universal health insurance. And so our hope is that by putting the ideas out there, they'll be ready for when people uh, who, who read our book, listen to this podcast, and are persuaded by the ideas can figure out the right opportunity to introduce it at either the state or the federal level. Well, my hope is that when the policy window does open, they do, in fact, read very carefully the book by you and Laron. We've got you covered. And that they take into account the very good arguments that you've put forward. So, Amy, thank you very much for joining me today, and good luck and congratulations on We've Got You Covered, Rebooting American Healthcare. Thank you so much. It's been wonderful talking with you. This has been Econofact Chats. To learn more about Econofact and to see the work on our site, you can log into www.econofact.org. Econofact is a publication of the Fletcher School at Tufts University. Thanks for listening.